The following podcast contains explicit language. As faithful servants, it is our duty to ensure that the children of Gilead live by the laws of Scripture. The Holy Scripture is a miracle. It is a gift given by Him to all of humanity. We believe that our sons and daughters should be taught to read it. That is a radical proposal, Mrs. Waterford. Hello, and welcome to another Slate spoiler special. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate, and today we are spoiling the second season of The Handmaid's Tale. Here to talk with me about the show is Slate podcast producer Verilyn Williams. Hey, Verilyn. Hey, Christina. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm well, despite the trains being, you know, trains. <laughs> um, we're also so happy to have freelance culture writer and former Slate intern Lena Wilson with us today. Hello, Lena. Hi. Thank you so much, Christina. Oh, no problem. All right. So the first season of Handmaid's Tale, which was loosely based on a 1985 novel by Margaret Atwood, uh, debuted in spring 2017. The second season dropped in April. Lena, can you give us a little recap for listeners who haven't been watching of where the last season left off and where the second season picked up? Sure. Uh, So previously... (laughs) Elizabeth Moss, I'm sorry. So first season finale kicks off with June finding out she's pregnant. Um, Serena takes her to see her daughter, Hannah, and threatens Hannah's life. Um, She's basically like, be good because I want this baby so, so, so bad. Janine, who tried to kill herself and her child um, that she had biologically with a commander, uh, is about to get stoned to death by all her handmade buddies, but they uh, ritualistically drop the stones, and it's, like, very dramatic. There's a lot of slow-mo, um, and Aunt Lydia is not happy about that. June also comes into possession of a lot of first-person accounts by other handmaids. Um, it's a bundle of letters uh, where they're all sort of talking about the families that they were forced to leave behind and the mistreatment that they're facing in Gilead. Um, and perhaps most importantly, Moira, love of our lives, Samira Wiley, uh, escapes to Toronto successfully. Um, and the season ends altogether with June being thrust into a van, her fate unknown. Season two opens with her fate known. She's being taken to a fake hanging made to intimidate all of the handmaids who, uh, declined to murder Janine. Um, and sort of starts like Aunt Lydia's brigade of handmade torture where they're <laughs> standing in the rain with rocks to you know teach them a lesson about holding rocks um and yeah to being... me that sort of reminded me of like an exercise they might have you do in bar class right. which like just hold your arm out doing like a tiny little pulse for like minutes or hours at a time yeah just getting real toned basically mm. um but so then they find out that june is pregnant and it's like stop everything she's so sacred um and that turns into sort of this like psychological warfare between june and lydia because um lydia is like you know that you have nothing to lose but all the rest of these handmaids do and you're being selfish and june's like oh god am i um (laughs) and crisis of conscience 
And in flashback, we learn a little bit more about Gilead forming um, because June's daughter Hannah gets sick and has a fever and like her school immediately sends her to the hospital. And June is basically condemned as a horrible mother for like giving her child Tylenol. So it's just sort of giving you background on the extent to which like women are being medically policed and um, children are becoming like this huge uh, medical and societal priority. Um, the White House is being overthrown in flashback, and at the end of the first episode, a gynecologist gives June a secret key to a tunnel, and she ends up in a truck. Uh, she goes to a safe house where her lover, Nick, who <laughs> is the biological father of her baby and also a close um, guardian, a like big head honcho in the Gilead government who's close to Commander uh Fred Waterford, um, June's captive captor, and she cuts the tag off of her ear that labels her mm-hmm. as a handmaid and says, I am free. <laughs> <laughs> and that leaves Amazing us uh, recap. Season two. <laughs> wow. So the the first season ended basically where the book ends, if I remember correctly. It does. The second season, I mean, the first season did not hew entirely to the book, but the second season is almost entirely new material. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and so I, I've i been thinking a lot about why, about parallels between the finale of the first season and the finale of the second season um, and how they both sort of end with June with what what appears to be an, an opportunity to escape. And I feel like this is sort of what both seasons are loosely structured around is this idea of can and will handmaids escape. So Moira does. There have been, you know, hints to this uh, May Day organization that is smuggling women out. But it seems like um, June, at least, has a really tough time actually escaping i mean the the whole first part of the season is just her being taken and or taking herself from place to place with no real knowledge about when she's going to get out but just sort of trusting in these anonymous people who are smuggling her in the backs of trucks and everything um and it feels like the whole that whole first part of the season for me i was sort of thinking you know where is where will this season go if she does get out and of course she doesn't Mm. right yeah, um, I mean, <laughs> it's riveting television watching uh, Elizabeth Moss just kind of plot around. Who the- is, um, like, her acting abilities? I've never, maybe because I, you know, in covering film and television a lot more the last two years and watching a lot of co- things, her, the way that she moves her face, just her method acting, I was just, I was just, I've just been blown away yeah. by just how much, she gives and not only the trauma that she's gone through, right? You see all in one moment, her reaction to something, the way that she's calling back to other things that have happened to her. And then also thinking strategically about what her next move should be. So like you mentioned after episode one, for the first time we see her actually escaping and she ends up in what was it? The Washington post, Boston, Boston globe, Boston globe. Boston Globe, um, old building. And she literally, I think for the whole episode, is just her there by herself. Right? Yeah. Nick um, comes at some point. They have like a weird sex scene. They sure do. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sex scene. I think that was the first time that we've seen loving 
sex happen, loving consensual sex. Is that right? Do we want to call it that? Oh. Yeah. Is it cons- <laughs> can it ever be consensual when she is in handmaid in this in Gilead? Like, yeah. I have so many Nick opinions. I will tell you that much. And like related to the phenomenal nature of Elizabeth Moss's performance. I mean, I think this. I have a lot of honestly negative opinions about the second season, and I think that mm. it would be just complete, completely awash without um, the phenomenal female performances mm-hmm. in this show. And mm-hmm. obviously, Elizabeth Moss's is completely the linchpin in it. But I, I like almost lapse into unconsciousness immediately every time her and Nick are like <laughs> left together in a room. Just I will well, I say that I actually don't love Elizabeth Moss's performance in this really? in the show at yeah. all. And I wonder how much to blame on the directing because mm. I hate that every episode ends with her staring into the camera. <laughs> I think it is a stupid conceit. And I feel like I spend so much time watching her just have the same sort of look of determined, like almost like resigned determination on her face, like, like, I will get through this pain. And uh, my eyes are just slightly squinted, but I'm a strong woman and like I shall nevertheless I persisted, you know? Right. I, I feel like she wears the same facial expression for much of the show. That, and again, I think part of this is the fault of the director where there's these scenes where we're just watching her face. That's and what I loved about it. It's like psychological uh, torture. I feel like a lot of Brit Marling films are like this too, where like mm. people ha- who have a really beautiful or interesting face, directors just sort of want to linger on it and watch them sort of like run their fingers slowly along a curtain and like <laughs> they'll just gaze into middle distance. And, you know, in Elizabeth Moss's case, I, I agree that there are some episodes where she is incredible. The childbirth episode when she's in that, um, in the house all alone. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a more real and affecting depiction of childbirth, period, mm-hmm. in film or television. I think she did a phenomenal job there. Um, I think in the finale, which I hated, she did a great job, <laughs> really? too. Oh, my gosh, Christina. We have, such... <laughs> you have the hottest takes. <laughs> really? I, season two. I thought we were going to agree on that. I'm so glad we I don't. Was I was so worried this would be boring. The whole time. I was like, I literally have never been in a position where like, I was standing, I was screaming at my TV, I was pacing. Because... In a good just, way? Because you liked in, it? In like a very um, stressful way. I feel like the show this season, because there are so many parallels to our current um, state of affairs here in the United States, I feel like I was just constantly like just being like thrown into these situations where like, yep, this is where we're heading. Like even that scene that Lena mentioned where she gave her daughter Tylenol because she, you know, who has it? Like who among us have not she had a gone fever. through because she had a fever and she also, but also because because she couldn't afford to take the day off. Right. And right? so the school's and policy was a kid can't come to school if they have a fever. And so yeah. she gave her kid a Tylenol to reduce uh, her fever. And the school found out and said, you know, that you've violated school policy. There's so much tension in like, what is this going to mean? What are gonna, the consequences going to be? She's put in the bad mommy box. <laughs> and what does that mean for this world that is changing? I mean, I feel like things like that happen all the time right now. Like literally little black girls can't sit on their porch and sell water. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there. I felt like I was constantly being confronted with like, 
wow, this is what it means when people that are in the intersection of different identities choose one identity over the other because they think that they're going to be free in this new world. And then, I mean, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we see the arc of Serena this this in this season. And I just kept thinking, like, what are the 53% of white women that voted for Trump? What are they feeling right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if any of them are watching this show. I'm sure yeah. they are. Like thinking about what you said about the directing, Christina, I think my greatest issue with the show is the writing. Season one was actually almost a direct retelling of the book um, and ended exactly where the book did. Like the Waterfords are younger and sexier and like it's a little bit more punchy, but it's basically exactly the same as the original Atwood work. Season two, Bruce Miller, the showrunner and his cohort have just decided to do whatever the hell they want. <laughs> um, and as Willa Paskin pointed out in her review for Slate, that includes just writing some of the most un-Atwoodian language in the universe. Um, like, yeah, I cannot abide that language. Yeah, so like episode one, Offred is like, oh, father who art in heaven what the actual fuck and then it's like handmaid's tale title card like she's just imbued with this like annoying punchiness where she has to like embody the like revolutionary girl statue um as a television character and the entire point of offred slash june in the novel is that she's like an every woman and she's just along for the ride and she doesn't know what the fuck she's doing she's just someone who got caught up in this like horrible thing and they try to point to that a little bit in flashback because like her mom was a crazy feminist and like she's not (laughs) and um but like you know once she becomes a part of the handmaid's tale like she's not this casual observer through which like the world or through which the viewer could see this like very complicated world she's like this active revolutionary in it and i think that's where it starts to fall apart because like you can only ride that wave for so long and they try to complicate it a little bit with like i think around episode three or four um she starts to get broken by aunt lydia because she uh causes the death of people who uh, Muslim people who were trying to, um, to help her. Yeah, to shepherd her to Canada. Um, and so she like goes catatonic for like an episode, but then immediately it's like cool girl vibe, like back on point. And it's just like, I don't know, she's just written by men, man, mm-hmm. like half the time. Mm-hmm. And it's so noticeable. <laughs> yeah. And I know one of the other episodes, uh, she, she ended with something so similar to that first one where she goes, like, I know I should make my peace with whatever happened, but fuck that. And yeah, then the episode like, ends. And yeah. I'm like, that is, it's like, uh, not a super meaningful phrase, but we're meant to think like, wow, how revolutionary and brave is it that this handmaid has used <laughs> the F word and like <laughs> is still fighting back after all these episodes. But there's no dynamism to that arc. It starts with intense torture. Every episode starts at such a a pitch that mm-hmm. it can never increase – it tries to increase the level of horror, but I feel like I was just at um, – I got a little bit numb to it because I was just observing the same very high degree of horror happening with every episode. And I don't see Offred's character changing at all. Serena, we do see her character change. I appreciated that even though I hate the message that it ended up sending in the finale. Um, but the the fact that – Wait, can I can I push back on the the high degree of of trauma like the, that that it stays at the same level? Yeah, please. This the episode where um they they want 
um, June. They they want June to have the baby, and so the Waterfers decide that the best way to do that is by the old fashioned way, which essentially means for him to rape her and when she is like thirty nine weeks pregnant. Thirty nine weeks pregnant, and uh, and at the end of the day, this whole thing is a a, a, a a series of rapes, right? The whole handmade experience is a rape, but there was something. So like I could I was uncontrollably sobbing the they held her down and they and it it just felt different cuz it felt like okay we're in this world there are rules to this world and these people are following this, these horrible rules that felt like one thing and then the way that systematically like everything from Serena holding her hand which they call back to in the last episode which I thought was really interesting once Serena spoiler alert cuz this is the spoiler special loses her <laughs> finger they hold she they hold hands again and I, it immediately brought me to that scene where she holds June's hand and you think like are they having a moment like well I guess we know but June is probably like what's happening and then Waterford comes in and she holds her down on the bed and they like rape her in a way where she's like no no like you they pan to her face and like for me that felt that felt like a different degree of of horror um and even the in the in the, the finale there there's a moment where after um when when June and Waterford are in the kitchen and he's like bumbling he's trying to make tea for his wife who just her we'll get to why her the finger was amputated in a second um and he's a she, very caring husband yeah he's trying to find the tea and it's so interesting that he gets to make all these decisions but he can't fucking know where the tea is in his house but okay um and then he's like <laughs> That's what really pisses Marilyn off of all the things Waterford Because it's just also just like women know everything. It's just such a, it was just, it just made me really angry. It was just like, it was very on point about like domestic It was so on point. And then the moment where he's like, there is a place in this house for an obedient handmaid. You can stay here. We can try again. When he knows he's not the father of that damn baby, but like he's just like living in this world where he's like so out of touch. And then he's like, and then she's like, you know, whatever she says, fuck you, probably says fuck again, something. And then he's like, you know, and maybe I could have arrange for you to see your daughter you know like to me like those words i don't know for it was so affecting to me because i could also like i've been there right i've been there where i've told the guy on the train like no thank you and he's still kind of just like but come on like you're so beautiful i can't believe your man will let you be on the train uh, alone like <laughs> mind you we both are on the train right and so like those moments when like people just keep testing your boundaries keep t- and i just feel like it was amplified being in this world but because i think the moments where i can see myself in the world is what I felt most like that that felt in way more torturous than like the hangings. Okay, so hmm. let me clarify then a little bit about what I meant by um the like keeping to the same level of torture for the entire episode. I think because there was never any release from that. It was like um you know painful dissonance and torture over and over again. And but we why never why would they be released? Like because I, just, I think I, that what for me what makes an enjoyable uh, film or television show is when there's ups and downs and conflicts and resolution. And this just felt like a hundred percent no hope, no intrigue, just uh, horror a hundred percent of the way through. And so I was I would sort of dread watching every episode because I would know that I would just see another scene of torture. They would find some new way to tell us, oh, by the way, this is a society that oppresses women when there it didn't seem like there was any sort of revolution brewing in the background. Offred's character wasn't really making any progress or doing anything besides every single episode reminding her fetus like, oh, I'm going to make sure that you grow up in a happy household or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't feel like there was 
uh, any plot really happening. It was just like things that made me feel bad, things that made me feel mm-hmm. bad, things that made me yeah. feel bad. And when it's one part of a show like Game of Thrones, so like it reminded me a lot of the um, Theon Greyjoy plot line where he's being held mm-hmm. and tortured. Mm-hmm. That was so painful to watch. But there was other stuff happening, too. That was that was more uh, complex and complicated than just like, I hate that someone is being tortured right now. And Handmaid's Tale felt like 100 percent that. Uh, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. For one, um, I do want to say that I think it's very interesting that uh, June at no point tries to uh, induce a miscarriage um, like even in this like horrifying world, like the female character must carry her pregnancy to completion, which is like, you know, something that happens to female characters in film and television all the time, because God forbid, like someone have a realistic abortion plot line. Um, but I think huge bummers are well, like some well, of my favorite genre of media. <laughs> um, like I love like Requiem for a Dream and Short Term 12 and like, these movies and TV shows that are, are like about really heavy stuff and like very rarely let up, but not even, I'm not even asking for levity from the handmaid's tale. I'm just asking for any kind of catharsis whatsoever. Well, when she didn't, she's bleeding for like on three episodes and she doesn't tell anyone. She's like sitting in the ward. And that was after, you know, Aunt Lydia put her on the whole, like, this is what you did when the, when the Muslim family gets hung. I feel like she went into a shell and then she was just bleeding and she was just kind of like resonant to whatever was going to happen in a way. I feel like in those those episodes, I thought there was no baby. I I was thinking, oh, she's just keeping the baby in her so she can have the pregnancy, um, you know, the, the the all the things that come with her being pregnant. Like for me in my head, I didn't think the baby was going to survive. Yeah, sorry. I mean, I don't want to. I do want to have like a whole conversation about like the tone because I think that that's like a huge part of my experience with the show. But yeah, about the miscarriage thing that I said, like. Obviously, there is this like risk to the pregnancy, but that's like during this like, you know, one and a half episode arc where like June is just like catatonic um, and there's no like miscarrying is not seen as like a solution to what she's going through. It's just like mm-hmm. I'm having this baby and I need to like protect it, um, which I like understand to a certain degree, but just like you see like. In Juno, which is like one of the definitive like pregnancy movies of our time, um, like her having an abortion is like never an option. Like mm. actually, I just like it's just. Well, I think it's a question about like what what are women's choices and what would a woman's choice in that situation be? And I guess I kind of I maybe and maybe I was reading into this, but I I was seeing the little choices that June was making every single day. But abortion was never one of them. Well, because I think she gets treated better. She doesn't have to do she doesn't have to get raped when she's pregnant. Exactly. Well, right, but once she is pregnant and is having a baby, she's like, well, I, you know, like you said, she's constantly promising it like this better future and stuff and it's like the psychological torture of bringing a child into the world is never really like, you know, the fact that she doesn't actually have to do that is never mm. And I think just in the broader landscape of like women's representation in media. No, I get what you're saying. Her big emotional issue throughout this season, or at least for the second half of the season, is what does it mean for me to bring a baby, specifically a girl, which it ends Mm -hmm. up being, into this society where people are repressed, murdered, 
uh, tortured. Girls cannot read, and that matters hugely um, by the end. And, and you know, this is like a 1,000 times extreme of the way I sometimes feel when I look at, like, my little niece, mm-hmm. you know, and how, like, brilliant and curious. She's almost two. So, you know, she's very small, and uh, it's just sort of developing her personality. And I think, like, man, I just don't want her to to enter the world and be told, like, stop being so bossy and don't flail around so much and, you know, um, the, the things that I remember being told as a child. And I know, mm. and I, like, that's obviously not the same as bringing a girl into a world where women can be drowned for kissing mm. somebody that they love. I, I I can understand why, Lena, you are confused why June didn't try not to bring the baby into the world. Yeah, I just think it's interesting because, like, as our society right now comes up on the, like, the very shadowy reality that abortion uh, is under threat, um, you know, like, there's this whole culture of women fostering each other through uh, the reproductive process and ending the reproductive process. And there's herbal abortifacients and, like, at-home abortion techniques that women have been fostering for centuries and are still fostering now in communities in America where it's impossible to get an abortion in any sort of feasible, like legitimate medical way. And so I think there could just be something so interesting to be said there. Like, surely there are other handmaidens in this world who are not trying to have their babies. Like, obviously, it gives you a privileged position. But if we're going to posit motherhood in the society as like the ultimate moral quandary of the last four five episodes of a 13 episode season like it feels like that should come into question at all and i feel like to not address that is to sort of play into this media trope of like women have to carry their pregnancies to completion because god forbid we'd like display an honest abortion you know yeah so uh one thing that made the last several episodes particularly affecting for me was what's going on in the U.S. right now and what has been going on in the criminal justice and immigrant detention systems for uh, for a long time, which is a separation of parents and children. And this season is very concerned with the bond between a mother and her biological child and how cruel it is to separate them. And I feel like in its emphasis of that, of the cruelty of forcing June to carry this child only to see it ripped from her and the cruelty of her not knowing where her child is, but then being able to see her for just a short period of time and seeing Hannah sort of uh, resent June a little bit, like, why didn't you try to find me, um, is the it, it's sort of uh, ignoring the idea that, mm. like, also kids and their non-biological moms have have really important bonds. Like, I, I was really disturbed by Janine's storyline where Janine gives birth to a child that she calls Charlotte. It belongs to Warren and his wife. The baby's sick. No one can figure out why. The A doctor says, you know, there's no biological reason why this baby is sick, but she's about to die. Then Janine gets the chance to hold the baby. And in one night, once the biological mother is able to have skin-to-skin contact with this baby, the baby miraculously recovers. And she says something like, you can't keep people apart who smell like each other. You just can't. Like, 
I, I mean, yes, it was really cruel to to separate them. And I'm not saying that like <laughs> it that the handmaid's tale situation, the like scheme of forcing a woman to carry their child and taking away from her is fine. But like that I feel like that is fetishizing this like biological bond between a mom and a baby that like that is the ultimate healing bond and the most valid type of motherhood that like gave me the heebie jeebies. Well, I was talking about that scene with um, my girlfriends, three of them who are moms. And I was like, I was talking, I was talking about a lot of ways in the way that you were talking about it. It was like, oh, look at the way that they're setting up this dynamic. And they brought up the, um, the breastfeeding part where like, um, June is the, the milk is not coming. And so, mm-hmm. but the minute she sees the baby, all of a sudden the milk comes through and they were like, yeah, that happens. <laughs> um, and so I think I was confronted with, the the maybe the possibility of that actually being a thing and but i don't think that that's separate from the way the the show is kind of setting it up as the goal like i don't think it's you know what i mean like it's not the goal that's there are tons of families that are, don't have biological connections and even um like we see the picture of hannah um june's daughter and the i guess the family that she gets put with after gilead gets her um like we see pictures of her in the house smiling and you know and so i think both can exist like you know there are biological ways in which a child is is rejuvenated by connection with her mother and that child will be just as cared for just as loved just as healthy in a situation where they're not with a biological parent yeah i think that motherhood is like the most divine experience in the world um i think that like you know the biological process of motherhood is like absolutely exquisite and beautiful and in a lot of ways i really appreciate like how this show like unapologetically portrayed those things i fully agree that the episode and it's also like a miracle that anybody would do it again because <laughs> it's like also painful and you know when i see that so yeah but that isn't yeah yeah, yeah so i agree that like the episode holly is like was one of the best yeah. of the whole season yeah. um and that she had her baby on all four, which is something doulas tell me all the time. Like, why do we have a system where women are expected to be on their back to have a baby? Like, that is actually the worst position to be on. So I appreciated the ways in which the show acts. Like, even though they depict motherhood as this thing, but I think that as this, like, goal. Um, but I also think maybe someone on the writing team had a doula as a, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there were things yeah. that, like, little things that they were um, noting to that I don't often see in, in television. Right. So I really appreciated, like, a lot of those biological factors. But then, like, there's this bullshit surrogacy plot line in the flashback where Moira, oh. like, Moira went through an entire pregnancy and got engaged in flashback. And that's just like, by the way, um, right, Moira was and, a willing yes. surrogate. Because, like, you know, who gives a fuck about the black lesbian character? And, like, there's this, like, sort of conflict about, like, having a baby and giving it away, but it's this very realistic depiction of, like, I need the money, I feel capable yeah, of doing this, yeah. and ultimately she makes peace with it. So I feel like that's directly at odds with the show's other, like, entire ethos that, like, being biologically connected to a child means you can never leave it in, like, your whole life. Obviously, June struggles with that in very meaningful ways. And I think maybe, Christina, you and I as gay people are just pushing back against the idea that, like, to be a biological parent of a child I, no, is I agree. the utmost connection that you can But why have. can't it be that they're showing all the things, you know? like, But they're not. <laughs> they're not showing all the things. But they're not, they're not, they're not, I mean, I think that it's always interesting on what you get to prioritize over the other, what you emphasize over the other, what you spend more time on, right? But I do... <sighs> 
I don't know. It's weird to be on us on the side of like <laughs> these writers, which are. I mean, I I was trying to read a, a, um like read more about like who, and I end up like who were the writers on this on this season particularly, and I got caught up with um this one Asian woman that was that they added to the team who used to write for um ER, and I was like reading about like you know just her writing style and the ways in which maybe that influenced the show, but yeah, I just I think like. <sighs> I guess I'm just thinking about like Gilead as a place that is really, really horrible. And what are the what are the ways we find joy in that world? What are the ways in which we survive in that world? What are the ways in which um, like if that is if like if motherhood is the only is the way that you get any kind of um, release from the constant torture, then is that a, is that isn't that a valid choice? I guess I'm 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 thinking about it a little differently, but I think I think it is valid what you're saying as far as like why is this the story that writers are choosing to tell in this way? You know why isn't why didn't we spend more time with more more Moira and her flashback? Like why is, was that like a, a side? You know so yeah, I guess it was like for me the Janine miraculously heals her baby simply by being there when the the. You know, obviously the when the black doctor first, oh, there's so much in this because the, the the doctor that they bring first of all, women are not supposed to even read. So let alone the person that was an expert. You know, once they got like the baby was gonna die, the person that was an expert to kind of assess what's going on with this baby was a aunt, a black aunt, and so no, she was a uh, Martha. Sorry, uh, yeah, like aunt Martha. Not privileged position. No, not privileged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was a Martha's, um, which is like the maids yes. in the house, domestic servants. Um, domestic yeah. servants, and so she was called to come to the hospital to assess the baby, and you know, there's the again the subtle choices, right? The moment where she's like given the stethoscope. Right? Mm-hmm. I thought that was so corny. I I was just like, oh, because <laughs> wouldn't you like if you had if you went your whole life. Being the best, whatever she was in the medical field. Neonatologist. Neonatologist. <laughs> and then you were reduced to being a, a, a domestic servant who wasn't even allowed to read. Right? The, and then being in that moment where they're calling you, not to, because of your expertise. I just, I was just, maybe I was affected. I don't know. Maybe I was like such a sucker. I am a sucker for certain <laughs> things anyway. I'm a sucker for corniness, as June Thomas <laughs> and I share. <laughs> um, but I was just so affected by that. But the, the idea that also that race wouldn't play a part, I was also mm. just like, oh, so all of a sudden you're letting this woman that probably was like receiving racial um, prejudices even as the expert in her field to come and do this thing like those are the ways in which I was more just annoyed with the show in the ways in which they kind of they were trying to do one thing but like not it wasn't very intersectional well that's the other thing is that race literally doesn't matter at all in the world of The Handmaid's Tale there's even a black commander which I'm like okay sure yeah and they never like (laughs) they just don't see color in The Handmaid's Tale let's not even just mention that as if, like, the commanders of Gilead, like, would not take issue with, like, having a black child. Also, did you guys notice that he's the one, he's, like, the only commander who's like, no, we don't need a handmaid. Yeah. We're perfectly fertile on our own. Like, oh, really? The black guy? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes. Like, that was some weird stereotyping that I did not appreciate. Um, yeah. But this is also a departure from the book. Because in the book, there was, like, one line that was, like, you know, and the black people, the sons of Ham, are, like, away or something like that or in the midwest so yeah it's interesting that the writers have decided in this in the show to include people of color in this way yeah i mean it's interesting because like from an outside perspective in terms of representation you're like oh like 
there are like June is married to a black guy and it's not really a thing. Mm-hmm. She has an, a mixed race child and it's not really a thing. Like there is that joy of just seeing like uncomplicated representation. But in Although the world of the Handmaid's Tale, woman, which, yeah, there's yeah. no such thing as uncomplicated representation. Yeah, so yeah. like there should be space for there to be a diverse cast without it becoming this colorblind thing. But I also think it's interesting in terms of like a doctor being made to be a Martha, like the levels of privilege in The Handmaid's Tale are not really addressed. Like, um, off Glenn 2, the one who replaces Emily once mm-hmm, she's taken mm-hmm. away in season one, there's this, like, tiny arc in season one where she talks about how she wants to be a handmaid because it's a more privileged position than the one she had in the real world, where she was, wow. I think, like a homeless drug addict. And she's also a woman of color. And she ends up being the one who blows up the Rachel and Leah Center in season two. Heroically. Um, heroically. But it's like, we don't fucking know anything about her other than that, like, she feels more privileged as a handmaid and then she, like, doesn't because she is the first to protest Janine Stoning and gets, like, horribly beaten and tortured as a result. But so it's like, we don't see anything about the fact that it's not a less privileged position for her to be this woman who like can't read and is ritually raped. Like, what does it mean that like the state of America as it is, like contains these women who might honestly feel better off as like a handmaid. Mm -hmm. Um, We just have these women who like, you know, were at the top of their field and like middle class um, and then are reduced, you know? So, so there's very little complication in a realistic way about how class and race and education level would yeah. play into like the evolution of this world as well. And it's hugely frustrating. Yeah. Oh man, the finale. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, so I, I guess I want to like pick up the thread of tone here a little bit because actually like Verilyn, I really enjoyed the finale. And I think it's because there was like any tone besides bleakness, like, at all. Um, I thought that it was hugely like dramatically variant and um, interesting in a way that I like did not find the rest of the season at all. I feel like to see 12 straight episodes of just women being tortured um, in the most basic way, like largely like based on biology is just, you know, I have a hugely complicated relationship with The Handmaid's Tale as a female critic because I feel obligated to watch it so that I can participate in the cultural conversation about my own oppression. But there are also so many men that I admire and respect who say, oh, I can't watch that. Like, it's it's too upsetting for me. The ability to opt out. Exactly. It, that's like such a privileged position. And I'm like, oh, like you know, frankly, like, boo-fucking-who. Like, in 2016, I think, like, four of the, like, best actress nominees for an Oscar, like, had portrayed rape victims. Mm-hmm. You know? It's like, watching TV and movies as a woman is constantly dealing with the reality that your body could be under attack at any minute. And The Handmaid's Tale is, like, the ultimate embodiment of that. And so for the I season mean, two finale... also Underground, which was on WG. You know, and I, I think I'm like, uh, I, I was like, uh, here goes Verilyn bringing in race again. But I do, I felt the same way. The fact that uh, like no one really watched Underground, and I was like, extremely frustrated because it was a brilliant show. Um, totally, that dealt with a lot of the, the stuff that's also in Handmaid's Tale. But like, 
you know, but it was slavery. And so no one wants to talk about slavery anymore. You exactly. Know? And I feel the same way about like certain shows that deal primarily with like lesbian or LGBT characters. Like yeah. there are these different valences of it. But yeah, I think absolutely. the space that The Handmaid's Tale occupies in our cultural conversation, it's like this is the show about women's oppression <laughs> that you need to be watching. Yeah. And it's it's very much the show about white women's oppression yeah. that you need to be watching. Um, but so season, the finale actually had a plot <laughs> other than that. Yeah. And I was just so like, relieved um, because like there's this episode that's bookended by rape there's Mm. like all these horrible um, grapplings with motherhood and literal torture and I like just the fact that there was like politics happening and like any world building beyond just women are oppressed um, I like found hugely cathartic so Christina please do (laughs) rebut I was so excited to see June about to escape, mostly because of the world building fact of it. I felt like, okay, I really have a sense of how bad Gilead is. (laughs) And I'm excited for June to get outside and to see what's going on outside Gilead. Like, are people working to overthrow this government? What's going on in Canada besides, uh, like, people protesting the commanders when they come to visit. Is there any, you know, we hear at one point when she turns on the radio, a voice that my partner said was Oprah. Um, it was indeed. Okay. So she really? wins that I bet. That. <laughs> um, if, you know, I guess doing like a, a, like a guerrilla radio broadcast about like, here we are in the United States of America broadcasting like we're still here and still whatever. Um, so I'm like, OK, so there are some people out there. There's, uh, you know, a, sort of like a what seems like a growing um, a growing political movement against Gilead. You hear about sanctions. So I'm like that was that grew because Nick, when he was in Canada, gave the letters of Handmaid's testimonies on what they were going through. Their letters like, don't forget about us. Right. And I thought like Nick in this season, even though I think um, Nina mentioned how annoying he was to her, I thought like the ways in which he was able to use his privilege to move forward or help June has it really was affecting to me. Yeah, he's a real hero. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I hope Yay, he Nick. Dies. Um, <laughs> whatever. So, but the second that June ended up in the reeds by the side of the highway, I uh, hearken back to my Catholic education and uh, the story of Moses, whose mom goes into the reeds and sends her baby away on a river so that she can he or he can have a better life away from slavery. I'm like, oh God, June's just going to send her baby away and stay in Gilead. And I spent the next 10 minutes just dreading that my prediction was going to be true. And I think it was so stupid, not only for the sake of the show, which would have been a lot more interesting if she could have stepped outside of Gilead, which by this point we fully understand, but because it's she can't she can't do anything from within Gilead. She's proven herself very inept at escaping anytime she has the chance. (laughs) And it, it tries to make her out like some sort of hero like walking away like flipping her hood up like she's about to blow this whole (laughs) world up when she's not she's still just as powerless as she was before probably even more so because now she's on the run with a tracking device in her ear and now i don't even want to watch season three 
Yeah. I mean, that's the whole issue with the show structurally is that June has to be the conduit for the plot everywhere she goes and they can't just make it an ensemble show, which it very much should be. It should be like Orange is the New Black. So many things. Exactly. Like, so there should be space for June to go to Canada and us to see what's happening there and then to start following someone else in Gilead and see how their life is going. Like, I'm really glad that Emily escapes and I will tune into season three just to see if her wife, Clea Duval, becomes mm, a, a semi-recurring character, <laughs> her queen. Um, but yeah, I, I totally get that. And I think it's really interesting that you bring up the biblical imagery because for the first time in this evangelical Christian radical society, the Bible matters in this whole show. Um, like the episode- But Jesus never comes up, which they keep quoting things from the New Testament. And I'm like, but well, we don't want to bring in Jesus who was all about love. OK, <laughs> that's so, like, it's very episode- realistic in that way. <laughs> yeah. But so like the episode is called The Word and like a. Uh, huge um, turning point that occurs here is that Eden, who we didn't even get into. um, Isn't it great that we get to watch Nick orgasm while he's basically raping a 15 year old? That was the most disturbing scene in this entire season. But it happens in the, it happens right here in the United States. I know, but that doesn't mean we have to watch it. But I think we we should be, we should have to watch hard things. I think maybe this is where we are. This is where we're separate, separating. I think like horrible things happen all the time. And for me, if if they hadn't included it, there would be some activists like, why didn't they include it? You know? Well, but so my issue is like, who is the audience for The Handmaid's Tale? You know, because I don't see. I don't think we should be making things for the audience. Well, no, but I'm I'm not saying that we should be. I'm asking who the audience is. Like, mm. I don't see men tuning into this show. But I men don't... are tuning in. I, I I read the I read the conversation the four of you had, and so I just did like a very I mean unscientific which survey conversation? of the men in my job. Oh, the um the conversation that <laughs> the one the, that we published the lesbian... at Slate.com. <laughs> well, because <laughs> we also talked energy? about this on uh, the waves. We did talk about this on the way. No, the, the one, the written the, one that I moderated Lina, between yeah. you, Alex Barish, and got it uh, about uh, Leonard, uh, gay and trans representation. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so after reading that, I, I like did like a very unscientific survey among my male friends, and I put everyone in the group chat about twenty <laughs> men. And, wow, <laughs> you know twenty all, men. Oh my god, I know, I know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, well, like, okay. there's also like men in my church or men like, you know, they're not necessarily like buddies, yeah. like best friends, BFFs. Um, and like a good, mo- like more than half watched the show. Wow. And I don't know whether watch versus like read about it. I think like maybe, but like they knew enough to be engaged in a conversation about the finale, which, mm-hmm. and like, maybe men that also spend a lot of time on Twitter, like there's, you know, um, they, that might be the case. But you know when you were describing the Moses scene with the with the, the the thing that made me so upset about that was that all these Marthas who most of them were women of color sacrificed so much I to know. get you there. Jude doesn't care, and I was yep. just like, yep. I, I mean, even if it's not for you, you have to do that for the mm-hmm. women that just sacrificed so much to get you here. Yeah, I think Rita, like, her Martha is absolutely dead. Like yeah. Yeah. season three, yeah, yeah. I, but, I was really pissed off, like by proxy, about yeah, that as no. well. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I like, literally it just hit me actually right now. <laughs> yeah, Nina, yeah. can you just comfort yeah. Marilyn since I'm not in the studio? <laughs> yeah. And then because there was this moment. Sorry, I was just gonna say the moment that we know that though is when she, when you know, Waterford is like, what? There's a fire that. So the thing that allows June to escape is that there is a fire that's set across the street, and that's the moment where Rita, the Martha in the house, you know, tells June, "You have to get your stuff. You have to go right." 
right now. And of course, June like is lollygagging, which is so fucking annoying. <laughs> and then and if she she like chooses her possessions. I was like, like, you need to go girl, right girl. now. This is when I was like literally jumping up and down <laughs> in my room, like, oh my god, like get out. Um, and then you know, so fi- finally, um, Waterford notices there's a fire outside, comes upstairs and asks Rita, "What's going on outside?" And her lips said, "I don't know." But her eyes said, I know, motherfucker, and I'm not letting you know. And the baby is gone, and June is gone, and now what? You know? So it was definitely, like, one of those moments where you're just like... And I think, like, that's another example of, like, oh, my God, these women are making choices every single mm-hmm. day that may seem like compliance, but there is not. Okay, but talking about compliance, one of the things that was just really the cherry on my disappointment... Sunday for this episode was when June hands um, the baby to Emily when it becomes clear she's not. And she goes, call her Nicole, which is the name that Serena gave the baby. Serena, the one who suggested that Commander Waterford rape a 39 weeks pregnant June while she's Mm. swarming to get out. Serena, who held June down while they did that. Serena, who has physically abused June, who is the one who brought this entire society into being Mm. when she went on her book tour about promoting her book called A Woman's Place about how women shouldn't work. Um, Mm. I I felt like the forgiveness for Serena, a woman who like basically sold uh, her womanhood to get some sort of power, which she only comes to regret when it becomes clear that that power doesn't exist. When she tries and loses her finger. Mm-hmm. Once she loses her <laughs> yeah. finger and once she gets whipped by her husband, she realizes yeah. like, oh, oh, shit. Like I, you know, sold out my sisters, basically. Like I sold out my gender to get a little bit of power because I could be a wife. And but, oh, that doesn't protect me. Oh, OK. Now I'm going to feel some small semblance of regret. Um, I felt like why did in this show we need to forgive her? I'm going to push back against you on that. Good. I thought it was like really productive. I mean, disclaimer to listeners, I am fully in love with Yvonne Strahovski. Um, who and plays that, Serena Joy. Who plays Serena Joy. Um, and that hugely influences my decision here. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's basically like hot and Coulter, right? Um, and I think that it matters to me to see the message that as a woman in our society, like you are fucked by virtue of being a woman, no matter what you try to do and no matter who you step on to do it. Um, I found that to be like hugely valuable because I think, you know, in the end, like as all of these threats are made against womanhood um, in real life in our America as it stands. Yeah, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't have sympathy for a woman who would I were I to exist in her world would have me like you know murdered for being gay. Um, but I have empathy for her like as a woman, and so wow. I thought that that was a very um, realistic and effective representation of. Yeah, just how that would work. And it was one of the few instances where Serena Joy's like incessant, like, I just want a baby thing um, actually worked for me because the fact that she had a daughter and had to finally reckon with the fact that she had engineered a society in which women would, you know, be disfigured for reading um, was going to affect her child. Like, it felt like a 
reasonable character arc for her for me meanwhile when she handed her the baby right when she was leaving i was like are you handing it to her so you can find a rock and hit her over the head <laughs> yeah that's it? what i thought because <laughs> yeah because she's going to run away it's that you whole know? thing where um i've written about this how disturbing it is when um men will say i remember this after the grab them by the pussy video came out when donald trump said that and all of these republican men were like as a father of daughters I believe Uh. that men should talk about women like that. And it felt like that worked for Serena as a mother of daughters. Oh, now I realize it sucks that women can't read. But but also there's this whole foundation for her in the season of realizing that her position is not privileged anyway because she is a woman, you know, like so until it had to do with her or her daughter. I mean, I agree that it was a reasonable arc and I loved it. That was like the one point that I really liked about this uh, season was her arc. But it was the the end where it's like, oh, now June's baby that she has sacrificed her life for multiple times is going to carry the name of the woman who orchestrated her rape and abuse. Oh, yeah. No, like, fuck that. Absolutely. Um. I I, I, I totally agree. Um, I was like, well, maybe Nicole Nick. I was like, well, maybe there was a different (laughs) reason. Oh, interesting. For why, (laughs) like, maybe that's why she. But isn't her other husband called Nick, too? Oh, yeah. And also she told. Oh, Lou. Yeah. Well, so she told Nick that she loved him in the finale as well. Yeah, which she hadn't done before then. Like, she's. Oh, God. I'm just like, you're married. Like. I mean, I Ma'am. Get, uh, I have so <laughs> but, many. But, but what, she, what she told, um, or oh, what's the 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 girl that was drowned, Eden. Uh, Eden. But what she told Eden, who we unfortunately haven't had time to really unpack her storyline. You know, in this world, you find love with every chance you get, or whatever yeah. that quote was. Yeah, right? I liked that. Um, with yeah. grown men as a fifteen-year-old. <laughs> no, with Isaac, he was twenty. I, it's fifteen and twenty is still bad, but I was. Because of how horrible the rest of her story was, I was I allowed myself to let that myself feel sweet and, about that. <laughs> and here's oh where God. I let you know that at 16, I dated a, a man that was nine years older than me. So, <laughs> all right, with that, <laughs> this is all the time we have. Yeah, um, we'll leave you with that juicy. Tea. <laughs> <laughs> Catch the waves for another episode. <laughs> right here. It's just Marilyn's love life. Episode. <laughs> I would tune in for that. <laughs> All right. So before we go, I'm really curious to know, will you guys be tuning in next season? Lena, I'll let you go first. Um, I mean, something that I feel very strongly but haven't gotten the uh, chance to voice during this episode is that I think it's like hugely disgusting that Bruce Miller is still the showrunner of this show. Like just f- from a cultural standpoint where we're at this reckoning of the fact that like women's stories and women's presence like behind the camera matter hugely. Um, the fact that a man is engineering the retelling of Margaret Atwood's seminal feminist text, The Handmaid's Tale, uh, keeps me awake at night, <laughs> frankly. Um, so if Bruce Miller is still the showrunner for season three, I will go off about it. Um, but I will probably try for at least the first like one or two episodes just to see if anything interesting is happening with Emily and Moira because I am starving for lesbian representation of any kind. Um, But if it's anything like the first few episodes of season two, then I will opt out. But also I'm a culture writer, so I might just have to watch it anyway. I will definitely be watching just mostly off the strength of um, Rita and Mm. Moira, all the black women, Martha's, um, that helped her get out and also all the black women on this show in general which I think 
Moira and the Doctor maybe the only two mm, other two yeah. um, just because I'm really curious about what it means for a black woman well black women that have a legacy of like escaping other situations other violent situations in this country in particular like what it means for their arc in the world like Gilead or in this Handmaid's world mm. Handmaid's Tale world yeah I would love to see more of uh, Moira and Rita I found Rita really interesting toward the end of the season um, I probably will watch mostly for my job, um, but also because yeah. <laughs> I I did get more interested in the season toward the end, especially with Serena and uh, uh, I I liked the way we were able to see, um, you know, her begin to try to organize within her groups of friends, even though I thought it was incredibly lame that the one thing they chose to ask for was for little girls to be allowed to read the Bible. Uh. Um, but I, I saw a lot of a little bit of change there that made me feel like, oh, this is actually an interesting story and people are developing and things are happening. Um, and also, I really hope that we get to see what's happening outside of Gilead. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I will watch, although I I doubt that I will find it particularly enjoyable if June is just doing same old, same old in Gilead. All right. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler special podcast feed. And if you like the show, which we hope you do, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. For Verilyn Williams and Lena Wilson, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks again for listening.